Welcome to Law for Community Workers On The Go, a series of podcasts designed specifically for community workers, health workers and anyone else who works to support people in their community. This series is brought to you by the Community Legal Education Team here at Legal Aid New South Wales and our aim is to help you help your clients. So tune in whenever you can, in the car, on the train, at the gym, cooking dinner, basically wherever you already listen to podcasts. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you learned something new and interesting. Hello, my name is Josh from the Community Legal Education Team here at Legal Aid New South Wales. I want to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose lands I'm on today, and I wanted to pay my respects to their elders past and present. Today we will be talking about apprehended violence orders, perpetrators of domestic violence, and what you as community workers can do to reduce the likelihood of perpetrators reoffending in the future. If this sounds like something that could be triggering for you, then now could be a good time to switch off and tune in another time for a different episode. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to do a quick shout out about a new resource which has been created by partners of the Cooperative Legal Services Delivery Program in Albury to help offenders plan ahead when they get an apprehended violence order or AVO to avoid breaching the order. It's a pocketbook and there's also an animation, which is a separate resource that goes with it. Here's Christy from the Domestic Violence Strategy Team at the Department of Communities and Justice talking about the pocketbook. And you can find a link to the new resources in our show notes. I found it really useful for the first-time offenders and I've used it as a tool to sit down with them to go over what the ADVL is and it's something they can take home and read or look at when they're able to as well because I think a lot of first-time offenders or a lot of offenders in general who come to court, they don't always fully understand the ADVO conditions because court's quite daunting and confusing and overwhelming um, for anyone as well. So understanding them, especially at a first time, is quite difficult. So having that tool like the pocketbook allows you to sit with someone with a guide going through some of those conditions to look at okay so if you've been drinking that was part of your ADVO what can you do and they've got some really cool suggestions about how not to breach it. Our key messages for today are if you work with people who have perpetrated domestic violence or talk to you about wanting to perpetrate domestic violence you can encourage them to call the no to violence phone line to speak to a counsellor who can support and challenge them to make different decisions. We've got their number in our show notes. Another key message is that if you're working with someone who is subject to an apprehended violence order, there are resources available to help that person understand what the AVO means and how they can adapt their daily life to avoid breaching it. Please have a look at the animation and pocket guide that we have put in the show notes for today's episode. Addressing perpetrators offending or reoffending is a key part of the puzzle in reducing domestic violence in New South Wales, and I hope that you find this episode interesting and practical. Let's start off with a little bit of information from Mike, a counsellor at No to Violence, talking about his experience working with men who perpetrate domestic violence and when his work can be most effective. This work has to be done with compassion. If you don't have compassion for the person calling, And the person calling is basically always a perpetrator. If you can't have compassion for that work, then um, you can't do that work. And sometimes it's very difficult, not just with compassion fatigue, but uh, with men who are doing things that are pretty awful. And 
it can be difficult to work with compassion, but that's the starting point. And I personally work on a platform of challenging and support. We are supporting the fact that someone's called in. We're supporting the fact that they've made good choices. A good choice might be something like, I'm going to make sure I don't breach the AVO. I've decided I'm not going to drink while this situation's happening. I will always validate a good choice, but I also will also challenge thinking that I think is unhealthy or, or not beneficial for that man. And I've found over the years that the better I get that balance between support and challenge, then the better the work goes through. But you you have to um, read the room and you have to um, understand whereabouts on the model of contemplation the man is. If, if he's very early days, and he's and he's pre-contemplative. Then there are certain things that aren't going to land on him very successfully. But if he is contemplative, if he is accountable, and he is putting his hand up and wants to change his behaviour, then we can start to move and work in a pretty healthy way. So there's a little taste of the work Mike does at No to Violence. Now let's find out a bit more about who he is and the work No to Violence does. We'll also hear from the CEO of No to Violence a little bit later. So make sure you stick with us for that. We also have a program which we call uh, the Brief Intervention Service, which was basically born out of COVID and the major spike in family violence incidents where people were locked up together during COVID. So we thought um, because of that, there was a long waiting list to get into men's behaviour change programs. We thought there needed to be a a fill-in, a niche or like a transitional period for men to be supported whilst they waited to get into group. And we offer that through our Brief Intervention Service. So that's about six calls, maybe every week for 30, 40 minutes where we um, we help support men, listen to them, help them with advice and with their thinking, etc. whilst they're wanting to get into group because they're a, they're a fairly vulnerable period. So that's a bridging program we have, the Brief Intervention Service. And those calls um, are with a counsellor? Always, yes. And usually the same counsellor. Um, we like to get some consistency. But the open line calls, most often a standalone single call, but they can transition into Brief Intervention Service as we see it. So we have some flexibility um, on where the man is just just wants to go into group, just wants to have a chat and that's enough for him. Or men who say, yeah, I'd love to do uh, have some more further support whilst waiting to get into group. Mm. Oh, thanks that, Mike. And has that been fairly successful in your experience of that, that six calls allow a man enough time to look at his behaviour and work through some of those issues with you and, and really take some steps during that time? Absolutely. I think that whoever come up with the idea, um, full credit to them. I mean, it's being assessed. It's basically a pilot at this stage. It will be reassessed to be extended. I really hope it does. Myself as a counsellor, that's just me speaking personally. I think it's so important to have men supported, someone who they can uh, who can listen to them, uh, not judge them, talk about their challenges and how they can face their challenges without using violence and abuse. So a, a lot of the stuff you can't do in a single phone call, but if we have a little bit more, uh, clearly we, we don't know how a person's changing. We'll never say that a person's changed. It's not our role to do that because we don't know how much of what we're hearing from them is actually um, true. To be very blunt, as counsellors and phone counsellors, where there's risk and safety issues involved, we have to be reasonably sceptical, as well as optimistic, because if I wasn't optimistic that men could change, I wouldn't wouldn't be doing this work. I I fully believe that every man can change. So, in answer to your question, a half a dozen calls and support is going to be a lot lot more um, worthwhile, I believe, than Mm -hmm. um, a standalone call, but they both have their place. We heard you talk right at the beginning of this episode about this notion of contemplation. Can you explain what that means? 
someone with an AVO that has just been put in their hand who says something like, I did not see this coming. Well, there's a couple of issues there. One is their self-awareness is probably needs some work. But also, they can go into a sense of shock because they've gone from what they think is a normal household to not seeing their kids, not seeing their partner, sleeping on a mate's couch, having all sorts of issues with mental health, maybe having issues with employment. You've got a man who's completely confused, a man who's probably angry, and so he's very likely to be pre-contemplative. That is, not in a place where he is ready to look at his situation and to actually realise that he has to change something. So that's pre-contemplative. And those people sometimes need to be allowed to reflect on themselves before they come in and start to do the work because they're yet to get to a place where that work is actually going to be of any benefit to them. And so some contemplation, some self-reflection, and by the way, if you have an ABO and you can't see your family, it is a golden moment to do that self-reflection. I say to men, this is a time for you to be alone. This is a time to be on your own. It's lonely. It takes courage. It can be scary. But there are ways that you can structure it up so that it actually works for you to think about how you got into this situation and what you can do about it. And if you want to blame the rest of the world, that's okay. But um, it's not going to help your situation. So if we get a man who actually says... I understand that this is my issue, then we've really got a healthy platform to work on. Contemplation, on the other hand, is someone who is contemplative, is someone who's actually thinking about the chance that, yeah, you know what, this is stuff that I've done, this is stuff that I can sort out, and this is stuff that is my work, and they can move into actual um, action on, the, on their behaviour change. So a, a big part of your work is to do that reflective work to get somebody to the point of being mm. contemplative mm. where they have that increased insight and self-awareness. Mm. And it's through a line of questioning that will get somebody to that point of self-awareness. Is that how you can help support somebody to get to that place? It is. And like I said, it needs to be done respectfully. We're not here to judge. I like to see it as myself and the man stand together both of us looking at his behaviour, not me judging it. I don't judge the man, but together we can look at his behaviour, almost like a team. I mean, he's doing the work. This work that we offer is invitational. We invite him to come to a place where he can see some of the options and the different skills he can use and learn to no longer face his challenges using violence and abuse. Some of the questions we can ask are... Um, Reasonably gentle, hopefully. Uh, some men say they like to be challenged a little bit more firmly. Others are in a very um, uh, emotional and sensitive place. And just a question like, you know, what sort of a bloke do you want to be? What is your family? need from you at the moment? What are the values that you hold and are you aware that you've probably left the road where your values were directing you and, and you've left that road and and to come back is what this work is about, to bring a man back to the his integrity, which means his values and his principles line up with his actions and his behaviours. Once we get those lined up again, he can well certainly uh, do things like reduce his shame because shame is what stops men even calling us in the first place because it is a it is a visceral feeling. It is a pain inside that they feel because they know they've hurt people that they've loved and if they want to start doing something about it, they have to face that and the shame involved. We'll put it this way, a certain amount of shame keeps our moral compass pointed in the right direction. Too much shame, a man drowning in shame, is what sees a man move into a very dangerous space. 
Mm. And in terms of the key messages that you have for someone who's used violence and is thinking about getting help, what are the kind of messages you would want to get out there? There's a lot of, um, I don't don't call them one-liners, but um, basic core concepts such as violence is a choice. Um, It's a choice and when a man says to me, um, look, I just lost control or it was just like an explosion or a volcano, I bring them back to the idea that, you know, a pressure cooker blows up because of its chemistry. It doesn't get a choice. A volcano explodes because of the chemistry involved. It doesn't have a choice. A man has a choice. And a small story that I, I give to men to help them understand that is if a man says, you know, I just pushed my partner and that was all there was to it. I'll say, well, why didn't you grab a knife out of the drawer and stab her? And you'll say, oh, there's no way no one wanted to do that. There's, I, I would never do anything that extreme. I said, well, you're just telling me that you've lost control and here you are making these cool calculated decisions you've not lost control you're never more in control than when you're using violence against uh, your partner or children so if you can get men to understand these sorts of things um they're often directed in metaphors and other other models that are very helpful the cycle of violence the effect of violence on women and children we throw a wide net in that it doesn't matter how a man understands his situation and what he's done and the consequences, but as long as we can get the message across, it could be um, film, it could be role play, it could be handouts, it could be theory, it could be metaphors or just a discussion. Um, you know, we have a varied way of uh, getting the message to the man that um, the violence has to stop. It has to stop with him and any point in mutualising it or blaming others is just not, nothing will shift, nothing will move. We need to get a man to feel that, we need to invite a man to a place where he feels like he can do it because a lot of men are scared they can't change. We ask a man, when was the last time you made a change for, for your own benefit or the benefit of people around you and they struggle to come up with it. So this is big, it's scary, and that's where the compassion and validation comes in. This is um, scary stuff early days, and the support has to be there, and it is there. And for men to say there's no support for them out there is not correct. It's all over the place, and it can be very specific regarding um, uh, cultures, um, sexualities, all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, we we need to, or I feel personally that um, the requirements are that how do we get this man to hear what we're saying and to believe it and to want to move and be motivated, internally motivated, that is, not externally by the police. And, yeah, the better we can do that, the, the better chance we have of working with him. And can you talk to me a little bit about the role that planning plays, if any, for a perpetrator of violence who says that they want to change their behaviour? Planning could be involved with something like uh, thinking patterns. Planning could be involved in something like, are you going to court? Okay, so you're going to court and you may be coming out of that court um, without the result that you wanted. You might not be able to see your kids. You might be getting a corrections order. There might be uh, all sorts of uh, repercussions for you. How are you going to plan that? How are you going to plan coming out of court? Have you got someone you can call? Will you call me? Will you call a friend? Because you're going to feel vulnerable. You might feel angry. It's important that you have a plan. So there's a plan going into court and coming out of court. And I find that's very helpful uh, for men going in. Other plans are 
what are your thoughts about the AVO? How are you going to comply with it? Is it a good idea to be drinking at this stage? You're staying at a friend's house. You can't see your family. You're not allowed to. The planning will need to incorporate things like uh, the fact that an AVO initially is a civil issue. If it's breached, it then becomes a criminal issue and that can affect you in all sorts of awful ways in the future to do with employment, travel, etc. So planning is about clarity of thought. Planning is about self-reflection. Planning is about putting your children first, your partner first. But with, it doesn't mean that you don't care for yourself. Are you going to eat well? Are you going to keep away from drinking drugs? Are you going to have positive thinking patterns? Are you going to be around positive people? And these people aren't the ones that clap you on the back and say, oh, she's right, mate, it's all her fault. She's lucky she's got you. I'm talking about blokes who will call you out on your behaviour and who will help support you through what you're going through. So planning is essential. It is essential to protect yourself. If your partner wants to call you, you can't answer on a no-contact AVO. If you see her in the street, if you see her in the supermarket, simple, go the other way. Accidental uh, meeting up with a partner when there's an AVO in place is your responsibility to get out of there. That's just part of the consequences, part of the looking after yourself so you don't make it worse. Um, what other plans are there? Um, keep your working up. Keep your exercise up. Meditation is a wonderful thing. Some men like to do that. Journaling is a wonderful thing. Some men like to do that. Calling regularly to resources like the Men's Referral Service, Men's Line, other places. Have support when you feel down. Try not to be a victim. Uh, you can't do anything beneficial for yourself if you're going to blame the world for where you are because as shocking as where you are, I would have thought a bloke that wants to get back involved with his family, it's not going to help him to see people like the child protection and the courts as an enemy. What it might do, what might be beneficial for him will be to say, well, I got here. I've reflected on how I got here. Maybe there are some things I need to look at. Maybe I'll go and talk to someone who will give me a bit of a heads up on that. If I was a bloke who had had an AVO against me, I'd want to know what I'd done wrong. I'd have a fair idea, but I'd want to get some clarity on that. Yeah, so these, mm. I don't know, you can call them plans or you can call them advice, but um, the understanding that there is support there. It's like when blokes come into group, I felt so good that I wasn't on my own. I wasn't on my own uh, because if you isolate, good stuff doesn't happen. Mm. And a few kind of practical things. If somebody calls, how many sessions would be available with a counsellor generally? I know you talked about that pilot program before, but generally how many sessions would be available? They can call into um, men's referral service any amount of times they want. The brief intervention service, to be eligible for that, we ask that a man actually applies to engage with a, a men's behaviour change program. Mm -hmm. We're happy to support them in the brief intervention service as they wait to get a, an intake assessment or wait for the group to start. But to be eligible for the brief intervention service and, and that half dozen um, support calls is a reasonable amount of accountability, joining a group and understanding that their behaviour may have got worse during COVID. Also, if they're isolated and they can't get to group, even though there are a lot of groups on Zoom at the moment, if, if, if they're in an isolated area, we also talk to those men as a brief intervention service. But generally, open line, Josh, if it takes a man to call in every day and he's fair income and he's accountable and he's not just seeking um, a crutch, so to speak, or relying on counsellors, then, you know, whatever it takes to mm. keep a man's family safe and to keep him safe.
I mean, who cares he calls in every day? I mean, ultimately, we'll, we'll probably look at someone like that and refer him maybe to some uh, personal counselling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can refer to that in his area. Um, we also talk about what a, a, a really underutilised um, resource um, a GP is. Most men have a GP and it's very simple to get a mental health plan. So there's some things that a man can do to be proactive in having more than one person to talk to. I say the more the merrier, uh, unless, of course, they conflict. We hope that they don't. We all like to think we're looking in the same direction with the same goal, and that's safety and respect in the world, in in the home. So, yeah, do whatever it takes. What will the sessions cover? Is there something that every session will cover? Are there different different elements that make up each session? Or that's a really interesting question, Josh. Because we're as we speak, we're probably nine months into the pilot. I think MRS be okay if I referred to it as that. It's a new program anyway, and we are still um, organising a manual to go with the program. But saying that, it needs to be flexible and it needs to, so to speak, meet meet a man where he's at. So in the very early days, because we're, we're looking at safety, we might talk about concepts like timeout. I spent about an hour talking through an exercise of timeout with a man a few weeks ago. Um, normally that would be done in, in a, I would do that in a room with a group of men with a whiteboard, etc. But um, it takes longer to do it over the phone, but um, who cares? I mean, you know, he was writing down notes at the other end and I, and I could feel that he was really um, actually enjoying and feeling confident about um, getting some skills that were going to help him and keep his family safe. Early days, we talk about the actual types of violence there are. Some men are just completely unaware that certain abuses are just that. So we talk about the different types of um, violence under categories of uh, physical, verbal, cyber, uh, social, financial, spiritual, all the different types of violence that are there so that at least we're talking on the same page and the man doesn't have any excuses that he doesn't know that what he was doing had this particular consequence of scaring his wife. We talk about patriarchy. We talk about um, how does a man value his partner. We talk about the cycle of violence that he goes on, that most men go on, using their control and power, and, and how he takes his partner and children around with him, and and how he can actually get off that cycle if he really wants to. But otherwise, and, uh, he stays are you on. Able it. to give go us ahead. a quick rundown of what the cycle of violence is, Mike? Yeah, sure. It's tough to do it briefly, but it, okay. it was a it was a model that was um, put together by uh, women victim survivors, I believe, in um, Dulwich in the US back in um, back in the nineteen eighties. Um, it has its critics at times now, but I find it one of the core pieces of my work in that. Um, when men see it and men go through it with you, they really nod their heads and say, wow, that's exactly where I've been. And it starts off with um, a circle on the board and at the top is the uh, violent incident and we talk about what happens after that. That is a remorse stage, for instance, how um, uh, the different emotions that men feel. And, of course, women go through the same stage with their partners who are hurting them. They go through a different set of emotions. So there's the remorse stage where a man feels bad. I'll be very brief. Then there's the pursuit stage where a man tries to get back into the good books. Um, And this could be through one hour. It could be through one month. There's no set time period. Moving into what is called the honeymoon stage where it's a little safer for the woman because um, there's an eggshelly type period where the man is on his best behaviour, so to speak. But unfortunately, if there's no behaviour change, a man can't stay in that honeymoon stage. 
eventually that'll move to what is known as the build-up stage where things start to um, get to him again. Um, he starts to be unable to face his challenges and irritation, so to speak, without um, showing abuse, being verbally violent. The woman will start to see changes within him that she knows are at the forefront of his behaviour getting worse and then it moves into standover stage and back into violence again. So that's a very quick runaround of the cycle of violence, Will. Uh, yeah, but in its when it's done slowly and um, in a very extensive way, I go through it with men and help them build it for their and personalise it. It's really good to personalise those those models to fit the man's um, behaviour. And when they look at it, they say, "Wow, this is." And I've talked to women, and they say to me, "You can get him to understand anything. Get him to understand this because she she's lived it." Uh, uh, she's lived it, and it's very helpful for men to understand that um, that's where they've been, and it's it's they're capable of stepping off that uh, that merry-go-round. And this podcast is for community workers, um, and so that that could be a, it could be a health worker, it could be somebody who's working in a shelter for people who are experiencing homelessness, um, anybody who's working with people in the community. Um, do you have one or two key messages for them if they're working with someone who has perpetrated family violence? Um, the, the, the key message of the anchor that we all work on, Josh, is, of course, safety. Um, you need to be in a safe place to even do this work. And by that, I mean you need to not be isolated one-to-one and the workers you're talking about have to be in a safe space. There has to be security, so to speak. Uh, they're all practicalities, but um, if we're talking about the work itself, the theories of it, I sometimes feel that I don't really have the right to impinge on people who work in homelessness or work in um, alcohol and drugs uh, because it's, that is specialist work. Children's work as well as specialist work, we, we touch on it, but um, I would never um, move into their field and... and, and tell them how to do stuff, so to speak. Um, but safety is the issue. And, and maybe maybe to talk about um, what we call smoke screens and their excuses. Um, their excuses that men use about, I was drunk, I was smoking too much dope at the time, I was tired, she pushed my buttons. I mean, early days in a group, I'll ask the men to raise their shirts for me so that everyone can show me their buttons because it, it's such one of those ridiculous cliches that men come out with without putting much thought into it. What they mean to say is um, my response to her were aggressive and angry. Men don't have any buttons. I know it because they lift their shirts and I can't see them. So getting back to community workers, I think to stay abreast of the common practices that we work with now, most of them are based on feminist theory. Uh, all of my work is based on feminist theory. To not get swayed by people who try to talk about what about the women. We know the statistics and the anecdotes and the police reports and the refuges and all of this sector, all of this sector as a general resource points to the one factor that the violence against women in this world is basically perpetrated by men. And the violence perpetrated by men is basically perpetrated by men. So there's only one gender, really. We know that uh, there are some women who um, who use family violence. We get that. I understand that. But as for them using it in a controlling, scary, fear-inducing way to limit and oppress their male partner, I haven't met anyone yet. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but um, 
you know, it's like saying in a conversation about breast cancer, will men get breast cancer too? Yes, of course they do. But uh, if you look at the numbers, we work where the work is. And what about resources? Are there any particular resources that you'd recommend for community workers who are working with people who perpetrated family violence? Look, one of the really good resources, um, and it's an acronym, and I'm going to be let, let myself down and we'll have to find out what it is, stands for. It's ANROS, A-N-R-O-W-S. Go to their website. An amazing resource for this type of work. No to Violence and Men's Referral Service. The websites are a really good starting place. <laughs> it sounds um, uh, simplistic, but family violence resources are everywhere. Everyone has it particular types. Um, there are YouTube films, uh, there are books coming out all the time. Um, pick up the front of a newspaper and read that for up-to-date uh, ideas on on what women are saying with regard to their struggles in the world and the lack of equality. Because I will say, Josh, I've always felt that uh, in the time I've worked in this sector, family violence is built on a platform of gender inequality. And you can't unsee that that is that's just a dead set fact and that's that's an anchor i use in my work and until we have men valuing women equally this will keep going yeah Mm. are there any well-being resources or practices that you would recommend for community workers who are working with people who've perpetrated family violence and by that i mean that you know it could be quite difficult in a professional capacity to be doing this work all the time Get your supervision up to speed. Um, mm. Strong supervision on lots of it because it's like when you're very thirsty and you need a drink. You're thirsty, your body's already showing signs of what that thirst is doing. This work will creep up on you. You may not think you need it. Oh, I'm, I'm going to skip supervision this month. I don't. I feel like I'm in good nick. That's a really that's a danger sign. This stuff will creep up with you, even if it's not vicarious traumas. It just might be some subtle things that you're carrying with you that um, you didn't even realise until you have some good supervision. So good supervision, ideally good peer worker conversations. Be around positive people. When you're feeling that there's an issue for you, if you're carrying something, go and talk to someone like a team leader or a workmate, someone who you trust, someone who is going to listen. Not someone who's going to fix things, but someone who will listen to you and understand what's going on. So it's important that you are supported immensely in this work because... If this is the work you're doing, then you're dealing with um, situations and incidents and behaviours that are just pretty damn awful and um, they can build up. They really can. So it's so important to keep your support network up. I found that really powerful listening to how Mike from No to Violence works with men who use violence. We're now going to listen to the CEO of No to Violence explain a bit more about the organisation and what they do. So my name is Jackie Watt and I am the CEO of No to Violence and um, we are the uh, Australia's largest peak body working to end men's family violence. We work with a range of organisations trying to create social and professional practice that can create the change that's needed to stop men using violence and to keep women, children and communities safe. So we do that by um, working on advocacy. We talk to a lot of service organisations and politicians, etc. We provide training and we provide sector development 
uh, to people who directly work with mine, but also to uh, parts of the system, for example, the courts and the police, who may need some finessing around uh, how we approach the topic of men's family violence and how we approach men. And finally, of course, we also offer it the Men's Referral Service, which is a call centre based in Melbourne, but providing a telephone service to all men in Australia on 1300-766-491. Are there kind of common issues that, that come up when you're doing training? Yeah, look, I think we've been at this now for probably almost 30 years. It started as a voluntary organisation in, uh, in Victoria and we've grown fairly significantly since then. And there's a few common themes and patterns that emerge. I think one of the things is that a lot of professionals and community workers are, are understandably quite fearful of um, approaching men who use violence. And that's a very understandable thing. And some of the, the sort of um, do's and don'ts, I guess, uh, that we've learned over the years is um, one of them is, of course, that we know Pretty much, I would say, 95% plus of our calls to our call centre involve men being in some kind of denial about what they've actually done or the harm that that's caused. So we know that that's a common response. You know, I didn't really do it, or she exaggerated things, or I don't know why the cops were called, uh, the kids didn't see it. All of those sorts of things can get named, um, and it can be very hard for a worker working, particularly if they're working on their own, uh, with a man or on these issues to be able to um, find a way of um, challenging his thinking whilst also operating in a support in a support role with him. And I guess what we try and do is we try and we, we provide support um, and we encourage people when we're training them to provide that support, to be the ear, to really hear where the person's at uh, and then also to introduce the concept of what harm is being done to other people around them and try and take them into that space where they can see it because often they can't see it. Mm. And for any organisations that may be listening and, and are thinking, oh, it could be good to build our capacity in this area, would it be appropriate for them to reach out to No to Violence and ask for some training around how they can develop some of those skills that you've been talking about? We would be very happy to hear from community organisations who may feel there's a gap in their knowledge and we can certainly design short-term uh, interventions. We can do stuff online uh, and we have a great, a great team of people in our uh, training and workforce development space who can adapt to what people feel they need. Uh, I should also say that in New South Wales, the preferred training provider is ECAV, the Education Centre Against Violence, and they provide some very specialist uh, training for people who may be um, maybe slightly uh, in a deeper intervention around misbehaviour change or a case management intervention. So they can provide very specialist training. We can also provide that training, but we don't uh, offer that specifically in New South Wales because, as I say, they are the preferred provider. What we try and do with our training work in New South Wales is fill in some of the gaps that they're not able to address uh, and offer introductory sessions. You know, here, here are the do's and don'ts of working with mine, for example, uh. and we could do that in half a day uh, for up to sort of 30 people at a time. And the, how does the men's referral service work with people who've reached out for help? So there's two things happen through the men's referral service in terms of New South Wales. One is that we have an incoming line, which is there seven days a week for anyone wanting to reach out to have a conversation about their use of violence. 
we firmly believe that, that people make a choice to use violence and the work that we do is involved in getting into a conversation with them about what's going on and what other choices could be made. So that's there for men, it's there for families who may wish to uh, be consult to consult someone about what they're seeing. It may even be a mate saying, hang on, I'm kind of seeing this pattern and I think my friend might be, you know, abusing his partner and his kids and I don't know what to do. So, you know, it's a secondary consultation for family, friends and also for other professionals uh, who may seek some advice around how to approach a, a tricky situation. That's seven days a week, um, as I say, every day of the year except Christmas Day. As well as that, we provide a referral point for the New South Wales Police. So when the police have gone into a, a breach of an ADVO uh, or they've been called to a scene and they've filed their report, uh, so provided that they have told the man that he will be receiving a call and check that he understands that and have got his number, they will then furnish us with those details and we will make three attempts to call that man directly to check in with him to say, hey, we know something's gone down, how are you, what's going on, did you know that yeah. there might be help available to you? So that's when we're trying to make a more active referral for him to engage with services. Now, it's fantastic that the New South Wales government is funding this particular service, but the truth is we're only getting to about 10% of the men who are yeah. picked up by police. And there's some issues with how to get the information and make sure, but it's... I feel there might be a bigger opportunity to get to more main. Um, maybe if we had a service that was operating outside of 95, because a lot of these main work. Uh, mm. Maybe if we had a service that could do some of the calls at the weekend, we might have more chance of um, getting people to pick up the phone. And mm. also if we could uh, really encourage and support the New South Wales Police at the front end to make sure that they get the partner's details uh, into their records so that we can make a follow-up call. Mm, okay. And ha has there been an evaluation done of this service and whether it is having an impact? Or? I think the Department of Justice have done an evaluation uh, of yeah. it. And I think, again, that, that issue about um, measuring the fact that we're not getting to as many people as we could, I think that's been a part of what's been considered. And we're obviously in constant conversation with the Department of Justice around this particular piece of work and what's coming up, what we're learning, what could be done better. So we're in a kind of continual loop on that. But I'd love to hear from some of your listeners, uh, Josh, around what do people experience as this bit of the service? How does that connect with what they're able to offer or what they're seeing and hearing? And, um, and are there other things we could be doing to uh, get the information out there that A, the service exists, and B, we're, we've got a team of staff, skilled, qualified staff, uh, ready to make the calls to these men, to, to get their engagement, to let them know mm. that, it well, A, they're not on their own. There is a service for them. I think that's a really important message for men to hear and for, for community lawyers and community workers to hear. But mm. B, that, um, that it's actually, you know, it's a part of the integrated Safer Pathways system in New South Wales. Mm. And is it... Do, do you have that, or will, will staff tell you about the, these kind of... I, I guess I'm trying to understand, like, uh, is, is it common that, that um, staff would have a sense of th this person has had a real breakthrough here because of the counsellor has been able to, to provide that support and also to be able to push them to challenge their own behaviour and to push through that denial? 
Um, mm. are, are those kind of experiences common or are they f- um, far and few between? Or? Oh, look, I think, um, I think that's exactly the question we're asking ourselves right now, which is why we're looking mm. at a lot of our data and going, what's that actually telling us? And I think, you know, at a higher level, I'm very interested in us doing a, an impact assessment of our phone work full stop, because now we're providing phone work across the country and we're bringing in calls from each state and territory and all the states and territories have different questions. They want to ask mm. about what we're learning about the men we're speaking with. And, of course, the Commonwealth have questions to ask as well. So there is a piece of work to be done on what is the impact of a telephone-based intervention and also then how does it link, as you say, with um, that wider system. You know, how do we, I mean, part of our workers' training is to make sure that we work hard to keep the voice of women and children in the room. So, you know, we continually bring it back to, you know, the classic thing would be, and we, we have had men saying, you know, I only got this nice behavior change program because I had a call with it, with someone from the men's referral service and I realized I needed to do something else. So we have had that anecdotally, but I think it would be really good mm. to get really firm, clear evidence around not just what's the impact and how do we evidence that, but also who does it work for and who doesn't it? Mm. You know, we've had, uh, we hear again, we hear kind of anecdotally, some people will say, well, you know, First Nations men, Aboriginal men won't use a, a phone, a phone centre, they won't use a call centre. Uh, and then I've had people say, well, that's rubbish, because everybody's got mobile phones these days. And, you know, mm. but then there might be a question, well, how do we reach out to First Nations men? Um, how do we reach out to people for whom English isn't their first language? You know, mm. we do use translation services, but is that enough? Um, do we need to have, uh, aspects of our service that we really can, you know, support men from diverse or newly arrived communities and make sure there's somebody there talking their language and talking their culture. So I think there, there are big questions about how people access the service, and I think there's okay. big questions about the evidence base. But certainly, anecdotally, we've heard we hear a lot of testimonials where people will say, "Until I spoke to the counsellor at Men's Federal Service, I was just keeping going, you know, round the loop." And, yeah. and when I had that call, or, or when I had that second or third call, because people do call us back, uh, I thought, right, there is something here, and I need to, I, I need to do something, and I can. There are services available for me now. The other bit of this is that there's not nearly enough services to, to say men to, and in New South Wales, you've worked quite hard at this over the years, and there's definitely more going on than there was, and, and we have a network of providers who come together every month or so uh, uh, in Woolloomooloo and we, we have a meeting with the Men's Behaviour Change Network of New South Wales and those are, some of them are big providers, uh, some of them are, are smaller community-based providers but they're delivering men's programs in groups or uh, in family situations or one-to-one and they come together as a group of professionals and talk about you know what the demand is on their service what they're learning, what's going well, what's not going so well, and what trends they're seeing. And so that's another massive source of intelligence and data. And you might, in future podcasts, you might want to talk to somebody from that network and ask them to tell you, you know, what's it like uh, mm. out in Burke or what's it like at Coffs Harbour or in Camp mm. what's it like delivering men's programs? And, and again, how do you know they work? And um, how, can we, how can we strengthen the system for to, to to make sure men are being kept in view and being held to account for their behaviour and being enabled to change. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. Um, and the another question that I had was around 
2020 was a very challenging year for lots of reasons. Um, were there any changes to the way that No to Violence delivered its service? Oh, huge. <laughs> we went into lockdown on the 16th of March in Melbourne, as you know, and um, by May we had um, got the support of the Commonwealth Government to take the phone work national across Australia. We got the support from the Women's Safety Ministers, which we're really um, grateful for, to uh, make sure that anyone in Australia could, knew that MRS was available to them. Partly because we knew that family violence was likely to increase during the COVID uh, pandemic and lockdowns, and that was evidence from other countries that that was going to happen. So we got the Commonwealth support to do that, but also we set up something called the Brief Intervention Service. And again, all of this had to be done online and remotely. We set up that service for a few reasons. One was to catch the men who would have been gone to behaviour change groups but were locked out because of um, the restrictions. And obviously they were heavier in Victoria than anywhere else, but there were uh, various states and territories went through various stages of potential lockdown and restriction and social distancing, etc. So uh, anyone who was attending a group programme would have been, you know, impacted. So we wanted to catch them so they didn't go off the radar. We're also very aware, and again, in, in New South Wales, this is also the case of waiting lists for men's programmes because there's actually not enough of them. And there's a great yeah. demand coming, uh, both from community but also through the court system because people now know about these programmes and rightly they want people to participate in them to see, you know, to see if change is possible um, and prevent, you know, incarceration. Um, so, so we were trying to catch that group, and we were also just mindful that there would likely be a demand, an increased demand for our services uh, during the um, social and economic crisis that was kind of unfolding as a result of the pandemic. So that brief intervention service means we can offer four to six counselling sessions to a man, so he can have more of a, a an ongoing and more intense, if you like, intervention. So that was part of what the Commonwealth funded us for. And the other thing they funded us for was to roll out uh, a toolkit for training workers. So back to your first question, who may be wanting to do something more uh, in the one-to-one space we mine, or who may need to just understand some of the um, some of the kind of support resources that may be in place for them if they're working remotely. So we did those three things under the guise of the Commonwealth funding, and we've just fantastically heard in the last week that that funding will be extended until June 2022. Oh, wonderful news. Mm. And Um, I should say, your question about what works and doesn't, so all of those three areas are being evaluated. So if you bring me back in a few months' time, I might have a bit more data to give you about what's worked for whom and etc. Well, maybe we should hold off releasing the episode. (laughs) (laughs) Or we could do an update. Um... The uh, I had heard that you had done some research into victim misidentification in Victoria. Can you tell me a bit about that? Oh, right. Okay. Well, we actually did some work in New South Wales back in 2017. We did some oh. work directly with the Victim Services, um, Victims of Crime Commissioner. And we, um, we worked with all the um, men who were referred to us as victims by the New South Wales Police. Uh, we did that work for about nine months. We spoke with thousands of men over that time. And during that time, it became apparent that we needed to do a bit more work with people presenting as victims. Because the truth is, Josh, that in our experience in the phone room and also at Men's Behaviour Change groups and programmes, 
which our members across Australia run, uh, the truth is that men will often present as the victims. It's, it's actually quite normal. So we're used to working with that um, mindset, if you like, that dynamic. They often feel the whole world's against them and she shouldn't have called the cops and anyway the cops overreacted and I don't know what I'm doing here and I haven't done anything wrong. So that's usually the starting point for the conversation anyway. But what yeah. we realised when we were working with these police referrals was that that sometimes the victim stance was masking the fact that there was pre-existing violence and that we were actually talking with the perpetrator. Uh, or the primary aggressor, I think as you've called it, the predominant aggressor. So we developed a way of working that enabled us to kind of track back because I think one of the key things that's being uh, learned now across our family violence systems is that family violence isn't a one-off incident. Very, very rarely is it a one-off incident. It's actually about a pattern of behaviour and abuse that's uh, that builds up over time that uh, essentially gets more serious over time. So uh, we know that we've got to work out, well, what's not who, who, you know, who smacked who first, but what is the underlying um, pattern here? Uh, what's really going on in this relationship? So, you know, the classic thing would be, obviously, the police turn up to an incident. She's smacked him over the head with a frying pan. He's got a big bruise and she's holding the pan. I mean, I, I give you that anecdote as an example, but just, you know, so the police at that point, they can't know or don't know what the history is, they don't uh, maybe have that information or maybe they can't access it or maybe they just don't have time. Um, so, of course, they see her with a frying pan and go, OK, well, she's the predominant aggressor. Um, but actually, when we dig around a bit more, you find out that there's a there's a backstory and that actually you tried to strangle her last week. So, mm. yeah, there's a problem here. So we developed this tool and we're hoping that quite soon that we will be in a position to say that we do actually have a validated um, psych tool here that we can use to really work with people who are reported to be primary aggressors and really, um, or victims, male victims, and really understand what's actually going on in the whole in the whole picture. And you know, we can't expect police to do this. They don't have the time uh, to do this, and um, it's probably not their job anyway. So we feel that you know, the more tools we can get into this space, the better. Hmm. Is there anything that No to Violence has planned for this year that you would? like to share? Well, we've got such a lot going on. So coming back to your question around uh, 2020 and the way things changed, the other thing we developed in 2020 in Victoria, but I know that they've been thinking about this in New South Wales, was an accommodation support service for men, um, looking at how we could provide, instead of her always having to leave, is there a way that we can accommodate and house him, but require some commitment to um, either behaviour change or at least engagement uh, in a programme to review where things are at. So the housing side of things, I think, is really potentially very exciting. Uh, the fact we've got the federal money is, of course, obviously very exciting. And we also know that the Men's Behaviour Change Network in New South Wales have got um, quite big ideas about how they could develop the uh, network of services that's needed around this, because we can't do this on our own. We know that, and it's not just about us providing the service to Maine and for Maine and with Maine. We know it's got to integrate very uh, critically and deeply with the sector that's providing services to women and children, but also the broader human services system. You know, what's happening in uh, family and children's services? What's happening in mental health, alcohol and drugs? You know, is everybody on the page here about what we're trying to do? We're trying to prevent women dying. We're trying to prevent harm being caused to families. So how do we get that whole of system 
response. And, and we're always interested in having conversations that take that forward in some meaningful way uh, for New South Wales. So, yeah, I think if anyone's listening to this and they're keen to, to have a thought leadership discussion or, you know, it could be uh, at a conference or it could be behind closed doors, but let's just keep talking about the systemic response. I'm sure that people listening to this will be thinking about where things are not working and, and we're always happy to hear about that too because we've got our part to play. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so what do we have planned? Okay, we're getting ready obviously for the National Family Violence Summit which is due to be announced I think today uh, when that's actually going to be. We're hoping we'll be uh, able to play a part in attending that. There's also the next National Plan, the fifth National Plan which is going to be, the work's going to start on that later this year, we um, uh, yeah we're looking for a, a, a national three-year study into how we can improve practice to reduce victim risk. So, but coming back to your question about the predominant address of identification, we're actually trying to, to develop that tool, but also take it into a three-year study so that we can really um, hold that up and show how we're able to distinguish by doing this work what is actually kind of happening in the relationship and as I say, not rely on frontline police who are you know, up to their eyes in, in so many other things and uh, we don't expect them to be able to distinguish what's actually going on at the, point, at the pointy end. I think, it's, um, I think that's too much to ask of our police force. Mm-hmm. And to finish off, would you be able to share one key message for community workers who are working with people, working with men who, you, who use violence well I think you know you've got to build engagement and relationship with the person who's in front of you and we try very hard not to collude with men I think non-collusion is a whole area of practice we can train people in but the truth is you've got to get some engagement and we know that if we don't engage with men they will walk away men men disengage so quickly uh, we know it's hard to get them to engage so we're trying to do our bit to make that happen because if we don't have engagement we don't have anything and I think, you know, know that in our work we're always putting the voices of women and children into that conversation. But they will always deny, minimise and blame what they've done. That's part of the defence that people have. And it really it's a defence against shame because people know they're doing the wrong thing. Um, and uh, part of our work is in helping to unpack that in as safe an environment as we can, being mindful of the impact, but also you know, dealing with that person as a human being and saying, look, if we just point the finger and lock people up, well, number one, there's not enough prisons for a start. Um, but also, you know, we've got to work with this person at a human level and, and find a way that they can take on board what it is they've done and how they have a choice and how they can actually do something different. Hmm. Uh, thank you so much, Jackie. Um, really appreciate your time and your insights. So just remember also call one three hundred seven double six four nine one any day of the year, and um, trend workers are there waiting to take your call and provide advice. And what what are the hours for that line, Jackie? So eight in the morning until nine at night. Actually, New South Wales is twenty four seven. It's twenty four seven in New South Wales, so yeah. that's part of our contract with the government. So look, we don't have a, an all night staff call centre, but we have a, a callback situation, and it does get used in New South Wales. So twenty four seven. Okay, wonderful. Law for Community Workers On The Go is brought to you by Legal Aid New South Wales.
Our aim is to help community workers, health workers and anyone else who works to support people in their community know about the laws that affect their clients and the services that are out there that can best help. Now there's really only one way we can make sure that that information is relevant and helpful to your work and that's with your help. So if you have any feedback for us or maybe your clients keep asking you the same thing and you just want to know more about that topic, then please get in touch with us. The email address is cle at legalaid.newsouthwales.gov.au. Make sure you follow our podcast channel on either iTunes or the Podbean app. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our Law for Community Worker alerts to find out what webinars and podcasts are coming up. You can subscribe to our alerts by going to the Legal Aid New South Wales website, hitting the tab News and Media, and then just follow the links. Until next time, thanks again from the CLE branch here at Legal Aid New South Wales.